So it's like whether or not you're successful, did you give it what you're proud of? What is shaken? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 242 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. For today's episode, I am chatting with Margot Hayes. She is a professional climber who has really paved the way for other women in her sport. Starting at such a young age, at 10, living in Boulder, Colorado, with her father by her side, who was also an avid climber, she soon made a name for herself and snagged a spot on USA Climbing's national team. In 2013, she earned the North Face Young Gun Award, which honors up-and-coming climbers. And then three years later, in 2016, she won three golds at the World Youth Championships. And that was only the beginning. Margot went on to be the first female to ascend La Rambla, which we talk about why that was such a big deal. And also, Margot gives us the lowdown on how climbing grades work, starting at one, which is super easy, and going up from there. Margot gets really vulnerable about what it was like for her to not snag a spot on the 2020 Olympic team and what her sights are set on now, navigating a difficult health diagnosis and really trying to just do the best she can with what she has. I always love getting to interview someone who hasn't done a lot of podcasts, especially when they are as much as a rock star as Margot is. This was really phenomenal. Truly, she is one of the best American climbers, period. So I'm so delighted at the opportunity to bring you part of her story this week. If you are not yet doing so, <laughs> you know the drill. Make sure you're following along with us over on social at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi and LA. I'm coming for you next week, hosting a conversation on runners safety leading up to the Los Angeles Marathon. The conversation is going to start at 7 p.m. over in Venice at the Rose Room. I'd love to see you there. I'm going to have an Eventbrite link. If it's not in the show notes today, I promise you I will be sharing it in my Instagram stories a SAP. So check it out. Last little bit of housekeeping. If you're not yet subscribed to the weekly hurdle newsletter, get in on that. Yeah. The link to do so is in the show notes. And with that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Margot Hayes. She is a professional climber. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. I, there's sunshine today, so I'm happy. I'm like, maybe I can get outside. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I can get outside. So you're in Boulder, right? I'm in Boulder currently. Yep. 
that's home base at the moment. It's cold. It's really freaking cold. Too cold for me here. But um, it's kind of this time of year is kind of like hibernation season for me, where I'm just focused on my training. Um, I'm not really climbing outside, mostly just in the gym, you know, every day. And that's kind of the schedule at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am so excited to talk to you for the show today because you and I were riffing on this a little bit before we started recording. I There's no solid podcast episodes with Margot Hayes. Is no. there a reason for that specifically? Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I actually, This is like the first yes I've said basically since maybe like when I was really young, I did one, but I'm a very private person actually. And I am, I consider myself an extroverted introvert because I'm very bubbly. I like to be social. I like to go out. I love my friends. I love meeting new people, but also I'm kind of a little hermit crap. I'm kind of a grandma, you know, I'm only 25, but I kind of keep to myself in some ways. And also that's kind of how I am with media and interviews and such. Um, I definitely pick and choose. Well, thank you for saying yes to Hurdle. Did you have a negative experience that made you this way? Or was this how you feel like you've always been? You know, I think I like sharing my story with the outside world, but I think I also very much value my privacy, like I said. In a certain way, I think sometimes we live in a culture of oversharing now with so much social media. And there's no judgment on that. I mean, I think there's a time and place to share everything and everyone's different. Um, But some people just do better being a little more reserved. And some people need a thicker skin. Some people need a thicker bubble. Um, And I definitely keep my bubble. So keep my bubble. Hey, you're entitled to it. You're definitely (laughs) entitled to it. And It's not surprising, honestly, for me, because you got into sport at such a young age. It runs in your family, not just climbing, but being outdoors. Tell us a little bit about how that shaped your desire to get into what you do now. So yeah, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. I was that kid who was always like running around naked in the dirt, in the sunshine, just like super tan. My hair was like bleach blonde because we were constantly outside. And so I feel like from day one, I had this appreciation for nature because my parents just let me play in the dirt. My mom's always been a huge gardener. You know, I would grow up during the summers, like eating from the garden, like the food that I would plant than I would eat. And so I feel like it created this really strong bond and connection and relationship that I had with the earth, with the outdoors, with nature. And then as you said, sport does run in my family. Um, My mom's father, uh, he was a mountaineer. He, and so I, climbing was never foreign to me because, you know, he did mountaineering. And then my father, who also grew up in California, he started climbing when he was in college at UOP. And he used to go to Yosemite every weekend. And actually that's he met my mom in Stockton and then, you know, they would drive down to Yosemite. So that was kind of part of the birth of my family as well. My dad would take my sister and I out once in a while to go climb, but it was pretty, like it wasn't a lot. I, from the time I was five or six, I jumped into gymnastics pretty seriously. And I know that sounds so funny, like five or six, like seriously into, but that's how gymnastics works. You know, a lot of the time your career is over by 18-ish Um, or earlier, you never know. So you get serious really quickly if it's something that you're passionate about, um, something that you have skill in. And so gymnastics was kind of my world. It was my focus. 
Um, I've always had so many other passions, but sport has always been kind of an anchoring point for me. So from the time I was about six, I was doing gymnastics. I was that girl who I was never as, um, I never like bulked up with the muscle as much. And so I was a little bit scrawny and maybe had more of like a dancer body. And I broke so many bones. Like I had so many broken ankles, so many broken metatarsals, my fibula, my tibia. I mean, I think I've broken, I think I've broken like 12 bones, not including fingers and toes. Wow. It's Yeah, it's a little extreme, but <laughs> I've been lucky lately, knock on wood. Um, <laughs> but so I actually, it was during a time when I had an injury and I went to school, one of my friends at school, his name was Sean, and his mom actually ended up being my coach. But since I was friends with him, she was like, oh, come join my climbing team while you're recovering. You can do top rope. You don't have to have any impact on your feet, and then you can stay active. And so I started, and I joined the team, and I fell in love with it. I loved that with climbing, I could do it with so many different friends, and that it was something I could compete in, and also something that I could literally just be back in nature, like I always had been as a kid. You know, in gymnastics, I was always locked in the gym. But with climbing, I could pursue this and I could be out, you know, I could be out in the cliffs, I could be out near the beach, you know, there are rocks everywhere in the world, you know, it's incredible. So it takes you to incredible places and gives you a view and a perspective that, you know, very few people have the opportunity to see. So that really made me fall in love with the sport. So you fall in love with the sport at a young age. When is it that you get a full understanding of how much potential you have within the sport? So let's be honest. I think that when I moved into climbing, I was not, I had, I had a background in gymnastics. So I was, I was strong. Like I was definitely really strong, but I had zero technique, like zero technique. And I also, I just, I was not as good as a lot of other kids. But I think I was talented. I won't say I wasn't talented, but I was not the most talented. I was never the most talented, but it was that I was passionate. And because I was passionate, I was willing to work my ass off. I was willing to work very, very hard. And I remember my coach during the time, she would always say that hard work takes you further than talent. And I think that's obviously debatable, but I had a baseline of talent, but really most of my success in the sport came from hard work. And I mean that in a very humble way. Like I'm saying I was not the most talented, for sure. I think that's refreshing to hear though, because so many of the people that I speak with, oftentimes like they had this really innate ability and were then able to work hard to get to where they are. So hearing you say, I really had to work hard and really home in on my skills. I feel like that, again, it's really refreshing. Now, when you say that you had to work hard, what did that look like for you? Often I was like number two or number three. So I was always kind of right under that cusp and always kind of a bit of an underdog and hard work for me. And also, I mean, yeah, when it does come to climbing is about so much more than just strength also, but when it comes down to strength and talent, I mean, I'm one of the only professional female climbers I know who can't do a one-arm pull-up. Like, I think I kind of cheated my way to doing one when I was 12, but I literally, I can't, I just can't do that. <laughs> but hard work when I was younger, I mean, I was, I was very, very self-motivated. I think even maybe a little delusional in the sense that 
I was like, I can work really hard. And if I work really hard, then I'll win. You know, when, when you're an adult, you realize that life is way more complicated than that. And, <laughs> you know, it's not always if I do A, then I get B. But when you're young, you're like, okay, if I work hard, then I win. So I would spend, I mean, I would spend nights in my room doing pull-ups. I had a pull-up bar. I loved my pull-up bar. I would stay at practice late. I would do extra practices. And I was like 13 years old, but I was so psyched on it. Like, I, you know what I mean? It did not feel like torture. It felt like this is what I want to be doing because I'm working towards a certain goal. Yeah. So I think I always had a certain level of intensity, but I think that work ethic was really what got me, I guess, where I am now. <laughs> How is that level of intensity greeted by those around you? Was it embraced or was there maybe a little bit level of concern with that? Um, I think both because I think sometimes having a hard work ethic is admirable, but also I think sometimes it's annoying. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes it's annoying and not only for the people around me, but also sometimes for myself. There's a lot of sacrifice. A lot of sacrifice goes into that. I mean, you actually don't have as many people around you except for the people who are really focused and in, in that little world. So for instance, I was never having sleepovers or play dates or anything like that. I had my friends at school, but I left school and then I had my climbing friends. And my climbing friends or my gymnastics friends, they were really my focus. And they also were in a very similar position. And so mm -hmm. it was completely normal. You know, it was like, this is just what we do. And I didn't know what, and li like them, you know, they didn't know what it was like to just go home after school and have a play date. And I, did, I didn't either. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was completely normal. <laughs> and within your family? Um, within my family, my... So my sister and I are very similar in some ways, also very different in others. Um, and we, she's three years older and now that's nothing. But when we were younger, that felt significant. So we were separate enough in our friend groups and what we were doing that we didn't have as much overlap. I've always been like a total wild child. Like my mother literally used to say, I need to go run the puppy because that's how crazy I was when I was little and how much energy I had. And so I think my parents just embraced that. And they were like, you know what, if this is what makes this girl happy is training her ass off and doing pull-ups in her room when we're watching a movie or we're reading a book or whatever it is, then she can do that. You know? And they were always there to support. They were always there to support me. They definitely didn't discourage me. You start at a very young age to see success because of this work ethic, starting to place in different events from the IFSC at Youth World Championships to moving up to the USA Climbing Sport and Speed Climbing Championships. It started to pay off. How did that feel for you? It's interesting because I feel like everything is, you know, a two-sided coin in a way. And for me, when I was younger, I think that success came with less pressure. I mean, I was always really nervous at nationals and, you know, competitions and everything. And it was, it encouraged me to keep working harder. Like with anything in life, when you work hard and then you realize it's actually making a difference, that is what encourages you to keep going because you're like, oh, this is actually getting me where I want to go. My hard work is paying off. I'm not doing this for nothing circling back to what I meant about a two-sided coin is that with success can come expectations and pressure. And that's just the reality of the world we live in. 
And it's easy to become a slave to that or become chained to that. But the reality is, is there's a way to separate yourself from the performance expectations that other people have, whether that is, you know, uh, your friends, your family, your sponsors, your coaches. And for the most part, normally it's yourself because we're normally hardest on ourselves. And I can say a hundred times over that I have been harder on myself than anyone else has been on me. You brought up the word sponsors. How old were you when you got your first sponsorship? My first real sponsor was a jewelry company in Malibu. I know the family. Um, and it was really sweet. It was the first like paid kind of deal I had. And I think I was like maybe 15 years old or something, 15 or 16. And it was really exciting for me because I knew them and this and that. And I also have um, fashion is one of my passions. And so it was kind of this fun little collaboration. And so I was pretty young, but I definitely was not, like I said, I was not the kid. You know, I grew up with a bunch of kids who were sponsored at 10. You know, they were sponsored and it was big sponsorships and, you know, they were already making money and this and that. There's not that money in cli- that much money in climbing compared to other sports, but I wasn't that kid that was just the star. And I also wasn't ever really just trying to be recognized for anything. I think climbing was really just a passion and a way I could challenge myself. And I've always been very addicted to working hard and trying to challenge myself to see what my limits are. Yeah. It it all kind of blends together, right? We're talking about not wanting to be super open um, in terms of like keeping your private life private, holding on to these memories for yourself before you really like allow the rest of the world to get Mm -hmm. into it. So it doesn't surprise me that like this is the approach that you take when it comes to working with brands. I also think that it's interesting because it shows that when you do align yourself with a brand, then you're obviously really passionate about that collaboration and what it is that they produce. For sure. You know, that's definitely something I'm very, I'm very keen on staying true to my values. And for me, that's why I tend to stick with companies that I feel like it's mutually beneficial. You know, it's a mutually beneficial relationship and they align with my values, you know, and no company is perfect in the same way that no person is perfect. It's really hard to be perfect in the world today. You know, things are so complicated, but I really do try and stick with companies that I feel align. I believe in, I believe in their mission. I believe in what they're doing. Yeah. And sometimes that means passing up certain opportunities, but also that means standing for the things that you believe in. As you start to uh, become recognized, let's say within the world of climbing, you also start to up your aspirations when it comes to your adventures outside. For those that are listening right now that may not have a lot of intel into why some of the things we're about to talk about are kind of a big deal, aka a very big deal, give some insight into how climbing works when we're outdoors and the difficulty and how that can shift from one climb to the next. Okay. So to keep things simple, I'm just going to stick with sport climbing, root climbing, because that's 90% of what I do anyway. Um, It's complicated enough. So there's something called the Yosemite system, which is where you have grades and it goes from, you know, maybe five, nine up to now 515 or 515 plus. And each grade has, for instance, A, B, C, D. So there are 
letter grades, which are, okay, number grades, which are a bigger jump. And then every number has, you know, A, B, C, and D. So as you move up the line, the climbs become more difficult. No, that's helpful. So basically what you're saying is a climb that's like five, four is going to be much less difficult than a climb that's five, 15. Yes, exactly. You're 18 and you start tackling some really difficult climbs. What was the prime motivator for that? Honestly, that's an amazing question. And I don't even know if I can answer that. Um, And I think maybe sometimes, you know, I think sometimes that's how passion works is that you don't necessarily know why you're doing something, but you're doing it because you love to and you have this drive. You know, you have this drive to do it. And I think I wanted to see how far I could push myself. And I think I wanted, I was really motivated to become the best that I could be or push my limits and see how far I could take climbing, see how difficult I could climb. I felt like my success came from an accumulation of hard work. You know, I never, um, I never really stood out as someone who was climbing the hardest or anything like that growing up. Um, and then when, you know, my late teen years, I feel like I really started pushing myself and accomplishing things on my own watch. And it was really cool to see that hard work paying off in that way. Yeah. As this passion really starts to bubble up and you take on these more difficult climbs, talk to us about what's going through your mind as you're getting outside, looking up at these rocks and contemplating your own potential. I have always tried not to put a limit on myself. And in the same sense that I don't like expectations in general. So, and and in both senses, I don't like expecting something to be too hard, but I also don't like expecting something to be too easy because I feel like it just sets you up to judge your performance. Whereas if you just keep an open mind and be like, okay, this looks cool. This inspires me. Yeah, this grade's really hard. I don't know if I can do it or not, but shoot, I'm going to (laughs) try. I feel like that's kind of the purest form of moving forward and challenging yourself. Yeah. So as you move forward and challenge yourself and you're looking at these rocks and you're trying to chew all these expectations to the side, how do you stay calm? I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I might look calm, but no, I'm not. Sometimes I'm calm. I used to be very focused on like, I want to try and get into a good headspace or this or that. And then I learned that sometimes we waste energy trying to get into this perfect headspace. And instead, you just go with what you have and it will work or it won't work. Either way, it's okay. (laughs) I definitely think though that breath work for me and you know, I've, I've talked to other athletes about this too, is so big when it comes to preparing to perform, calming yourself down. And also in climbing, for instance, it's really easy when you're on the wall to be holding your breath because you're, you know, you're, you're physically trying so hard. But the moment you stop breathing, you're not getting oxygen to your muscles. You know? So I definitely always try and take conscious pauses on the wall when I'm trying to send something difficult to just come back to myself and breathe, just come back to that kind of that checkpoint of, okay, am I feeding my muscles with oxygen? Did 
someone teach you different breathwork techniques or how did you start incorporating breathwork into your training? Okay, so I did learn techniques from various coaches or pe- people who had an influence on my training or my performance, but also even when I was really young, I mean, I feel like I was you know, such a little freak in the sense that I like I literally would research things. You know, I would be like okay, how do I meditate? How do I do this? How do I, because I always wanted to do whatever I could to get better. I mean, now like I try and meditate every day if I can. Mm -hmm. I don't. If I said I meditate every day, I'd be lying to you, but I try to, you know, I try to make time and I try and do that because breath work is so important. I think, Mm -hmm. especially in this world that we're living in, that is so chaotic, you know, it's so busy. We're constantly on technology, but I definitely learned Early on, I learned probably the first breath work I learned was from my coach's husband, Didier, um, who also was a professional climber from France back in the day. And I remember he taught us a few things and that's kind of what opened my mind to, oh, wow, like this, you know, this can make a difference. This actually can physically calm your nervous system. It can create balance between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic and put you in you know, maybe not the perfect state to perform because you're never going to be in the perfect state unless you hit flow state, which I don't know if someone else out there has control over that, but I don't. I definitely don't. When it happens, it's amazing. And I'm like, that was so cool. This probably won't happen again for a long time. <laughs> it's just the reality of the reality of it. But I definitely learned early on some breath work from him and then I kind of took it from there. Beyond that breathwork meditation on the mental side, it's also important for you to kind of get a rein on how you speak to yourself. Talk to me a little bit about what the evolution of that has been for you, your inner self-talk. You know, it's definitely been a mixture of things where I think that growing up in sport gives you a lot of confidence in certain ways. It also can give you a lot of insecurities, but I definitely learned early on that like talking to yourself in a kind way is important, you know, encouraging yourself, believing in yourself, but also I've always been someone who's really hard on myself, you know? And so like there have been times when I have not been very nice to myself and there's still, there still are those, but I definitely try to be kinder to myself now than I used to be. And I think part of that has really come with learning to be okay with failure because when I was younger, failure was not an option. I mean, I didn't even, I was like, failure is not a thing. (laughs) If I fail, it's only because this just wasn't, it wasn't like I didn't win yet. You know what I mean? So, and now I think learning how to accept failure and learning that that's really a part of life and a huge part of sport has also made it so when I fail, you know, I'm not down on myself in the same way that I used to be. And um, my coach actually, he sent me this article years ago. And this article made such a difference. It was so insightful. And basically, it was about why self-compassion is more important than self-esteem. You know, self-esteem is when you're high, you're high and you're happy and you're doing well. But when you're not doing well, it all crashes. Like you don't have self-esteem because you're basing your worth off of your success. And self-compassion, you can have at your highest highs and at your lowest lows. And that's what's so beautiful about that. Yeah, I love that. I love that sentiment. And to just go back to talking about like having negative thoughts, I mean, you're certainly not alone in that. I believe it's the National Science Foundation found that 80% of our thoughts are negative and 95% of our thoughts are repetitive. So if we think about that, about how 
likely it is for us to be repeating the same negative things to ourselves all the time. Like you're not alone in that. And no wonder why it can be overwhelming and stressful and whatnot. So this idea of self-compassion, it's so important. I totally agree. We talked about some of these big accomplishments happening for you at 18. At 19, you become the first woman to send La Rambla. Tell the hurdlers what the grade is on that one. Um, 515A. A 515A. Absolutely incredible. And your success goes viral almost overnight. I know that there was another photographer that was out there with you. And there's this amazing photo of you afterward, just looking like, how the hell did that just happen? Was that insane? Yeah. To be honest, it was a little bit of a crazy experience because I had friends at the time that were going to go to Spain and they wanted to try this climb. And I thought, okay, you know, I've climbed 9A. I was like, I can, you know, I'm going to try this. Maybe I can do this climb. And so I told them I was going to come along and I was really psyched. I was a little obsessive about it. I was like, you know, very focused on the route. I watched a bunch of of videos of the route, um, of people climbing it. And I remember I got there though, and they definitely didn't think I was going to, I was there to climb the same route they were on. You know, they, they definitely thought that I was just going to kind of climb other things and hang out. But I was like, I want to challenge myself. You know, I want to try this. I don't know. I don't know if I can do this or if I can't do this. And at that time, I knew that no woman had climbed 515. You know, there had been some slash grades or some debate about it. So I wasn't really sure. And although I was like, that's a cool thing. That's a really cool accomplishment. I was like, I just want to do this to challenge myself, you know, because this is the next step for me, regardless of whether or not another woman has climbed this hard it's the next step for me. So I got there, I started trying the climb. It was definitely next level for me, but I felt like I was capable. And when I ended up doing it, I did not, I had no, you know, preconceived expectation of how that photo or that accomplishment was going to blow up in the way that it did. I, that was not what I was looking for. That was not the reason I did it. You know, that was not my motivation. And it actually kind of freaked me out. You know, and I think this is the thing is from the outside. I think sometimes people see someone's getting a lot of attention for success, you know, for an accomplishment. But at 19 years old, that happened. And I think, I mean, I think I gained like 60,000 followers overnight. And it totally freaked me out. I actually remember the morning after I did the climb and that photo was posted. I woke up in the morning and I remember I was, I went into the kitchen. I was talking with the guys I was there climbing with. And I remember I started crying because I was like, I was like, I wasn't ready for this. I didn't expect, you know, I didn't expect people to think this was such a big deal or anything like that. And like I said, I'm a very private person and I'm an extroverted introvert, but I'm an introvert at heart. I I was honestly afraid of all of the attention. Mm. It was a lot it was a lot for me. And I also felt like once I once I sent that climb, all of a sudden I felt like the world had expectations yeah, to, for me to send harder, for me to do more. And I also even more than, you know, what the external world expected me to accomplish, 
I expected myself to accomplish more. I was like, holy crap, okay, what's next? Because my entire life growing up, my entire climbing career, it was these steps, these jumps, what's next, what's next, what's next. And then once I had that accomplishment, I was like, this is going to be really hard to beat. (laughs) You know, this is going to be really hard for me to do better than. Sometimes there's a parallel, for instance, you hear with like musicians who release a great album and then they're like, how can I beat that? Now everyone's going to be disappointed. Um, And I think it can kind of be a similar thing in sport. And I don't know for Olympic athletes because I'm not an Olympic athlete, but I can imagine that sometimes they go to their first Olympics, they win a gold medal, and then the next Olympics they're like, shoot, well, I have to get a gold or multiple golds in order to beat what I did last. And I think because we are our own hardest critic and we compare ourselves to ourselves, you know, to move forward and to make progress, when you accomplish something that is really big for you, that can be really scary because you don't know if you can keep climbing higher. But I think that was definitely challenging for me because I was like, okay, well, now I have to do another one. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, Future. Now, what does it take to achieve your fitness goals? Competitive drive might fuel the fire, but going beyond your limits requires a roadmap and a trusted co-pilot. And that is where Future comes in. It's a new way to get fully customized personal training that revolves around you. No matter what gets you moving, you'll find the guidance, motivation, and accountability to push beyond your comfort zone. Future has all of the benefits of one-on-one personal training without the one-hour time limit and strict schedule. Whether you need tips for sleeping well the night before a race or nutrition advice after setting a deadlift PR, your coach is ready to create a competitive edge wherever and whenever you're focused on fitness. And it all happens through the Future app. With the tools you need to plan your workouts, measure progress, and celebrate milestones. Start your 30-day risk-free trial of Future today. Head on over to tryfuture.com slash hurdle. Again, that is tryfuture.com slash hurdle. I've been using Future for almost six months now, and I cannot get enough. I love working with my trainer, Brandon, and trust me, you're going to love the app too. Also, got to give some love to my friends at Element. I am finally amping up my mileage again. Oh my God, saying that sentence makes me so excited. And honestly, one of my favorite parts is the post-sweat element that I reach for every single time. I am a, I know this is cute, super salty sweater. So I know it is critical for me to replace the vital electrolytes I lose through sweat. And that is exactly where Element comes in. It is so delicious. It always boosts my energy throughout the day. And it gives me those electrolytes that I absolutely need to fuel my body before, during, and after a tough workout. Not to mention it's zero sugar and doesn't contain any of the other junk I'd find in conventional sports drinks, so I do not have to worry about putting any harmful ingredients into my body. My favorite flavor is their orange salt, raspberry salt, close second, and the best part about Element is that it's grab-and-go packaging, which means it's super simple to grab a few packets and bring them with me on the move. 
Of course, Element has an awesome deal for Hurdle listeners. Head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com slash Hurdle to get a free sample pack with your purchase today. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash Hurdle to get a free sample pack of all of their delicious flavors with your purchase today. Your sentiments about not only feeling concern over others having expectations for you, but then you also starting to develop these new expectations for yourself. It's understandable that you felt overwhelmed. It's understandable that you're like, what's next? And so when you start to think about what's next, where did your head go at that point? I remember I sent that climb. I came home and... I was like, okay, I need to go to Seyus and I want to try this route now. And now that I look back on it, you know, I was so immature. I mean, I was so, it was like I was running on this treadmill of, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? And there was so much beauty in that accomplishment, but there was also, okay, I have these expectations. I didn't even give myself time to breathe. You know, I didn't give myself time to breathe. I made plans to go and do the next challenge, which was also 515, but maybe arguably a harder one. Yeah. And so, and I think I felt like I didn't even give myself time to really celebrate for myself. I think, you know, maybe the climbing community and externally there was a celebration about it. But for myself, I was like, okay, now I have these expectations for myself that I can do better. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so it was literally, I think I sent La Rambla in February after my birthday. And then I think it was maybe May or June that I hopped on biography for the first time. So it was quick turnaround. And between that, you know, between those two, I had nationals, I had, so it was, there was no, there was no breathing room. In 2016. So before all of this happens in 2016, it's announced that climbing is going to become an Olympic sport. So when you're starting to tackle all of these crazy difficult climbs in your head is making the Olympic team something that is on the radar. So the Olympics have been a dream since I was six, since I was a gymnast, you know, that was my goal in gymnastics. And then that obviously didn't happen. Was it meant to be? And then when, you know, that was accepted for climbing, I was like, oh yeah, you know, of course, like, of course I'll try for that. And at that time we didn't know how many people would be going. We didn't know what that was going to look like, but it was definitely something in the back of my head. And, you know, during this time I was also competing a lot. I was doing a lot of competitions. I think that my competition performance was more spotty when it comes to my success. It was kind of going up and down. And I was, I hadn't really experienced that because I feel like when you are in youth climbing and especially with how the style used to be, it was kind of like, if you work hard and you know, you do well under pressure, then normally you perform. But as you go onto the world cup circuit, things become like a little more complicated and the style, the paradigm of the style started changing. And so sometimes I was really successful and other times I really was not successful. And when I go back to how hard I am on myself, that was definitely a challenging roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember uh, at the time, you know, the headlines, it was you and Ashima that it was just like such a surprise that the both of you weren't heading out there. For you, how did you find self-compassion in those moments? It was actually a very tricky, it was a tricky road. And I think it was hard for all of us. So like, 
you know, even the girls that made it, it was not, it was not easy for any of us and props to the props to them for, for getting there. You know what I mean? They, they, they made it. And I'm, I'm so proud of those girls for representing our country because we were all on this kind of this road of kind of turmoil because the qualification process was, in my opinion, it was a little weird and it was very uncertain. There was a lot of uncertainty and for them to carry that through to the very end and qualify was, I mean, that's really props to them, you know, because it was hard on all of us. But I, it was tricky because I actually thought that my road to the Olympics was over after the last World Cup because the rule at that point was that 20 people could go to the Olympic trials. It was the top 20 from the all around in the World Cups, but it was only two per country. And I was a third American. And so, I was like, okay, I'm out. And I had that grieving period. You know, I had a few days where I was like really bummed about it. And I was in Kyoto with my mom after the last World Cup in in Asia. And I had to kind of let go of that. I was like, okay, that Olympic dream is, you know, at least for now, that's to the side and I need to move forward. But I got home. I went to New York for a photo shoot and one of the heads of the USA Climbing called me and said, hey, there's been a rule change. (laughs) There's been a rule change. And actually now they're saying that they're not putting a limit on how many per country can go to the trials, only to the Olympics. And I was like, well, shit. Okay. You know, I'm in New York. And then I ended up having this, um, like, Basically, I had like a weird health complication. I got back to Colorado and I was in the hospital for five days. And I was like in the hospital begging the doctors to be like, I'm like, I feel so much better. Can I please go? And they're like, no, it's, you know, basically they're like, no, we still have you on an IV. This, you can't go. But I was like, I think I have 10 days, 15 days until the Olympic trials where I have one more shot to go and try and make the Olympic team, you know? So I sat, I was like, I'm not training. I'm not speed climbing. And I definitely needed all the help I could get with speed climbing. That's not my thing. I will never touch the red holds again in my life. (laughs) I swear. I'm like, that is over. That is in my past. So I ended up, you know, I got out of the hospital. I think I had maybe 10 days from that point until I was competing in Toulouse. And I was really grateful to have that opportunity, but I also felt like I had been on this roller coaster of letting go of the Olympics, um, you know, not qualifying, letting for the trials, letting go of the Olympics, moving forward. I was in New York on this photo shoot, then I got sick, then I was in the hospital, and they're like, rule change. Then I had 10 days, and I was like, oh my gosh. You know, there was part of me, if I'm honest, that was like, I want to throw in the towel. I was like, I'm I'm so tired. But I decided, you know what? This is I can give it a Hail Mary. You know, like I can go out there and I can do what I can do. And you never know. You never know. I could surprise myself and qualify. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take this to the end. I already thought I took it to the end, but I'm gonna take this to the end again. So um when I at the Olympic trials, I remember my speed climbing was horrible. I mean, my speed climbing was not great anyway, but my my decent speed climbing could be enough to balance out with the scores. 
but I did a horrible job speed climbing. I was so nervous. And then bouldering was okay. And then I remember I was kind of like, I'm not qualifying. I was like, I'm not qualifying. And we had lead. And lead has kind of always been of the disciplines, I think, what has come the most naturally to me um, as like an endurance sport and a sport where you're just staying very focused and you're in this bubble just climbing up the wall, you know? And I remember walking out there. I was like, okay, here we go. And I remember it was my best lead climbing performance that probably I had had in years, you know? And I actually timed out. Well, I almost timed out and then I rushed at the top and, and fell. But I timed out. So I really, and that to me tells me, because I'm a slower climber compared to a lot of climbers, that I was very much in my bubble. And I was like, you know, this crowd, this Olympic trial crowd, this doesn't matter. I was just in that moment climbing and it felt amazing, you know? And then I ended up falling off the head wall, which is what we call like the very last section of the wall. And I knew I was like, I didn't qualify, but I truly felt proud. Like I felt proud. I felt proud. Sorry. I'm like emotional. I don't know why I'm emotional, (laughs) but I felt really proud of my performance because it felt like that climb was, I was focused on myself. I wasn't focused on qualifying. I was able to perform at the level that I knew I could, you know, and I got down and I was like, okay, end of chapter, you know, end of chapter. And of course it took, there was a bit of a grieving process and it was hard because that was a dream. But at the same time, it was a blessing for me because I was at a point where I was like, I need, I probably need to break from competition. I've been competing every year of my life since I was six years old and I'm 21. And I was like, it's time to take a break from competition. I'm going to start school back up. I'm going to focus on climbing outside and I'm going to put that on the back burner. You know, so honestly, I feel like I gave it my all, you know, I gave it my all. And really when it comes down to it, that's all you can do. So it's like, whether or not you're successful, it's like, did you give it what you're proud of, you know? And, and I, I did, you know, that last climb at the Olympic trials, I felt very proud of that climb. And that's really the only token that I needed to take away from that at that point. Yeah. And what a beautiful takeaway to be able to look on that experience and know that despite not getting the outcome that you had hoped for, you gave it all that you had. And that is certainly something that you can walk away and be proud of. Now, fast forward, we're three years later now. I'm like doing all this math in my head. A year out from 2024, are the Olympics still something that you're thinking about? I was a little bit on the fence about it. I was thinking for a while, you know, it was a little bit, I wanted to take that time after the last Olympics to really focus on climbing outside, focus on my school and then the pandemic hit. Cause that's life. Right. And all of us, that wasn't convenient for anyone, you know, and those of us who are here, we're lucky, you know, to still be here. So it's like, you put all of that in perspective. Totally. We're lucky that the only thing we dealt with was being inconvenienced, you know? So I had thought about it, but I really wasn't able to travel and climb outside to the same extent that I really wanted to after that Olympic, that failed Olympic attempt, (laughs) the first one. And I also have, so I recently was diagnosed with Lyme disease, actually. So I've been dealing with that for the last couple of years. Um, 
the treatment. It's something that's chronic. It's a little controversial, actually. Um, some hospitals don't believe chronic Lyme disease exists. However, there are many people who have experienced chronic Lyme disease and many doctors who are, they call Lyme literate, basically. Um, so I, there is a big part of me that was like Paris 2024, I would like to try for this. You know what I mean? I might as well give it another go. However, I would have had to start competing months and months and months ago. And I was not in the position because of the qualification process. So it's not like other sports where maybe you do a couple competitions and then it's like, all right, you can just go to the trials and let's see how you do at the trials. You could qualify with climbing right now. It's, it's a long process of one stepping stone, the next stepping stone. And if you, you can't skip a stepping stone. And so those early stepping stones of the road to Paris 2024, it was not feasible for me. Um, and so that was kind of a moment too, where I actually almost went and competed. And then I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, girl, I was like, this is not, this is not what you should be focused on right now because you need to do what's best for you, especially in the long run. And I decided that when it comes to competition, whether or not I want to compete again, What's really important for me is that I do it on my own watch and I do it on my own timeline. And maybe that doesn't, you know, I don't know if I'm going to compete again or not. <laughs> That's really like, I don't know what's in the cards with that, but it's important to me that I do that on my own timeline, not on the timeline of, you know, this two-year qualification process for the next Olympics. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, but I'm really excited to watch again. I'm really excited for the athletes that will make it. Unfortunately, it's only two athletes per gender again, which is a little crazy. But at the same time, it's cool that the sport is even going to be there. So how does that realization, that decision make you feel? You mean letting go of Paris 2024? Um, definitely mixed. Like I definitely feel, I mean, now I feel good about it, but of course, I think I felt a little frustrated that I was like, what? I was like, it's 2022 right now. And I have to let go of 2024. You know, I have to make that decision now, whether or not I'm going to pursue that. So I think I felt a little frustrated in that regard, but it's something I don't have any control about it or over. It's completely on the, you know, the Olympic committee and the uh, IFSC and such and USA Climbing. And so I felt a little frustrated, but I also, and a little sad to let that go so early before I was sure whether or not I, you know, I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to pursue Paris 2024. But when I had to make that decision two years before the Olympics, I was like, I was like, ah, you know, I, I don't know. But yeah, I have to let that go. How does your Lyme impact you on a day-to-day? -day? Honestly, it's pretty hard. It comes and goes in waves. Um, I'm doing treatment now. Like I just yesterday had an IV treatment um, for my immune system. It's a very slow process because you have to make sure that your body is detoxing as well. Otherwise, um, the pathogens are just circling in your system when you're taking different medications. There are such thing, there's such a thing called a Herx reaction. So basically, if you do too much to kill off the Lyme, 
your body can have a reverse reaction and your symptoms get worse. So it's really tricky. Um, It's definitely made travel more challenging in the sense that, for instance, I had an objective in France last year and I ended up having to turn around and come home before even trying it just because I was feeling really sick. I have weeks where I feel pretty good. And then I have weeks where I feel exhausted every day. I have a migraine every day. Um, I There's a, a really a, a plethora of different symptoms and it changes. They come and go. They get worse. They get better. Treatment is a little bit trial and error because everyone's body's different. Mm-hmm. And I'm hypersensitive. I've always been that way um, since I was little. And so my treatment process is really slow, which is frustrating for me because patience is not my thing. I mean, ask anyone who's close to me in my life. They'll be like, no. They'll be like, she's always 10 minutes late, but she has no patience. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I it's been a tricky process. And honestly, I'm kind of at the beginning of my treatment. Typically, it takes about two years for people to put it into remission. But it totally depends, you know, but I'm yeah. definitely having to organize more of my schedule, my life, my climbing around that. And I'm also coming back to the self-compassion piece. I'm having to be like, okay, I'm not performing in the way I want to right now, but also that's okay. I'm doing what I can right now. I am having weeks where I feel really strong and where I'm psyched. And then I'm having weeks where, you know, it's 5 p.m. And I'm like, I'm going to go take a four-hour nap. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's kind of just being accepting of the fact that we all have our shit and we all deal with that. And we all are dealt certain cards. And to be honest, I feel very blessed But also Lyme disease sucks. Lyme disease is not, it's no fun for sure. But I'm also grateful that I'm figuring out treatment and that hopefully I can get healthy. So I would say when it comes to goals right now, like that's my biggest goal is like to (laughs) basically to get healthy, to focus on my health. Um, And obviously while I'm doing that, keep pursuing my climbing but just be compassionate with the fact that some weeks I'm going to be able to do double sessions every day and other weeks I'm going to have to rest the entire week. So that's just where I'm at right now. And that's okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. And what a metaphor for life, right? Like just this (laughs) concept that like some weeks are going to feel really great and some weeks are not going to feel really great. And all that we can do is show up and give it whatever it is that we feel like we have. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned only two individuals per gender. Clearly, you have been a very successful woman in your sport. What does it mean for you to be one of the most successful female climbers that we have seen? It's an honor, to be honest. Like, it's an honor. I think about all of the women in my life and also to narrow in, you know, specifically on climbers and athletes that, I mean, I have women in in so many different genres of my life that have inspired me, but to think of the role that they played, whether or not they know they played that role, because, you know, (laughs) some of them like didn't even know me, but they were huge inspirations to me to think that maybe, you know, things that I have done or the role that I play helps some young girl believe in herself, you know, and helps her get out there and climb 
um, or do any sport or any passion, whether that's dance or music or another, you know, another sport, whatever it is, um, it's an honor, honestly. It's an honor. And I feel like it's also a full circle kind of phenomena because I think when you're growing up, there's a point where it's mostly just you're being inspired, you know, like your, your job is to be inspired and to do what you can with that. And then there comes a time in your life where you also, you know, you continue to be inspired, but also you start giving back by encouraging others. And so I definitely, it feels, you know, if I can make a difference in, you know, one little girl's life, you know, to encourage her to follow her dreams, then that's an honor. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, such a big theme we've kind of been resonating here with on the show here is in order to be her, sometimes you need to see her. And so for you, as you were coming up in climbing, who motivated you to be the best you? Oh my gosh. Honestly, the list is the list is so long that I don't even want to give a list because I'm going to leave someone off there and then we're <laughs> going to we're going to hang up this call and I'm going to be like shoot oh my gosh I didn't even mention her but I would say like my friends my family um I feel very encouraged by them and to be honest like my sister has always been a huge inspiration to me like her work ethic is incredible that girl's incredible and she's fearless she's completely fearless. Like she has dealt with her own adversity in, in life as we all do. And she has overcome so much, um, and accomplished so much. And she's also very humble. You know, Margot, I am so sure that there are women everywhere that are listening to this and literally would say the exact same thing about you. Your humble nature is just like truly beautiful. So listening to you say these nice things about her is awesome, but know that you have this greatness inside of you as well. And I'm so happy that we were able to find the time to talk about it. Right now, someone goes to your Instagram page. They see this outstanding climber and artist and model with almost 250,000 Instagram followers. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Um, honestly, like a girl that's trying to do her best. Like when it comes down to it, I think that, you know, a social media is an amazing tool we have, but it's also just half of, just half of everything. You know what I mean? Like for instance, actually just yesterday I was talking with a friend and I was talking about trolls on social media. And a lot of the time I don't let that stuff get to me, but, um, we were basically talking about the phenomena of like the pictures you see are not the full, not the full story. And, you know, it's like on days that sometimes you can seem like you're really winning. But like on the outside, you can seem like you're winning, but you're actually not doing well. Or you can seem like you're having a hard time on the outside and you're actually living your best life. For me, I really just try to be my best self. Like when I look in the mirror, I'm like kindness. Kindness is what it comes down to for me. And that's what my mom taught me is that when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter, you know, like it doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how pretty you are. That doesn't, that's not what's really at the core. The core is how do you treat other people? And especially how do you treat the people that, you know, some people would say, quote unquote, don't matter as much. And that's, I, I hate saying that. And that's why I say, quote unquote, I'm just saying that basically, how do you treat the people that you're going to get nothing back from? 
You know what I mean? Like you're not treating someone well to then receive something. You are treating someone well from the kindness and the pureness of your heart and your soul. And I think when you move through life and you try to do that, it actually makes you a happier person. Definitely. What excites you right now, Margot? So many things. Well, um, I'm trying to finish off school. So the thing is, is I started later. My thought I would go right to college, move to France. You know, life happens. But I'm a biology major, so I actually love science. I'm a total science geek. A lot of people don't know that. So I'm excited about school. I'm also very excited about the weather warming up so I can climb outside. I have some trips planned for this year, some goals, of course, which I always keep really close to my heart um, because that's just how I am. (laughs) But I'm really excited about that. And then I'm also excited about just other passions I have, like art and fashion. I really like to expand my mind and experience new things and learn from different people. And art has always been something that's just so amazing to me, so inspiring to me and something I always come back to. And so I hope that I can do more of that this coming year. Right now, you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice right after you send La Rambla, you feel the overwhelm setting in. You can offer that you a piece of advice knowing what you know now. What do you tell her? To slow down. Honestly, I would tell myself to slow down. I would tell myself to let my accomplishments and me feeling proud of myself, let that soak in, like actually take time to enjoy that. And then also I think, and this is something that I learned later, you know, a couple years later, and this is why actually probably the third 515 I did is the most notable to me because I really feel like I did it for myself. I did it on my own timeline. You should never feel pressure to prove to yourself or anyone else that you deserve your past accomplishments. You know, in that moment after I sent La Rumbla, I felt like I had to prove that I deserved that accomplishment by just doing it again and doing it again or doing better and doing better. And not that I would change, you know, going and doing other hard climbs. Like that's still what I love to do. That's my passion. But I would have made sure that, you know, I'm doing this because this is what I want to do right now in this moment, not because, okay, I need to prove to other people that I'm good enough to have done what I've done or prove to myself that I'm good enough to have done what I've done. Thank you so much for your time today, Margot. If the hurdlers don't follow you yet, where do they go? Okay. So I have, honestly, I'm not on social media that much. I'm trying to be more active on social media since it's part of how the world works. Um, but I have Instagram and that's at Margo Jane and it's J-A-I-N. So M-A-R-G-O-J-A-I-N. That's my middle name. Um, and I recently made a TikTok, which I am still not sure about, but <laughs> that's kind of where it's at at the moment. So, and it's the same handle. All right. Well, go find her on the socials. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>